G'day, this is Mark Pesci, and welcome to This Week in Startups Australia. It's that time again, time for our second news special of Series 4, and there's plenty of news to cover. For one thing, there's an election on, so what does that mean for startups? And then there's Tech Sydney. Is it really needed? Is it really helping? And is the VC implosion in the U.S. having any follow-on effects here? We'll ask the questions and hopefully we'll get to some answers on this new special episode of This Week in Startups Australia. This Week in Startups Australia is proudly sponsored by Braintree, the easy all-in-one payment solution for your app or website. Twista is also sponsored by Greenwoods and Herbert Smith Freehills, Australia's experts on employee share ownership schemes. Well, folks, welcome to another of our periodic news and review episodes of This Week in Startups Australia. Let me begin by introducing our panelists. We always feature an investor and a journalist, and our investor is Dean Dorrell, who joined us before on the Twista Sofa in our second series. Dean is principal at Carthona Capital, based in Sydney. Carthona describes itself as a boutique venture investor and advisor focusing on startups and growth companies. And Carthona has made investments in startups such as Zero Latency, Ingogo, and Airtasker. Joining Dean is award-winning freelance journalist Claire Connolly. Claire has written for numerous publications, including the Sydney Morning Herald, The Age, The Australian, Business Spectator, and PC Mag. Dean? Claire, welcome to This Week in Startups Australia. Thanks, Mark. Great All right. to be here. Let's dive right in. We are halfway past the point of a long federal election campaign. So long, no one really remembers anymore when it started. No one really knows when it's going to end. No one remembers the double dissolution trigger. And no one seems to be saying anything. So I guess the question here is, what does this mean for startups? All right, Turnbull is Mr. Agile Innovation. Is there any meat in that sandwich? What do you think? Look, he says the right things. Um, I think with a, a lens of startups, we, we have to applaud anyone that gives support to, which is pretty much a nascent industry. Right, and... and there was a palpable change in the air in startup land when he knifed Abbott. You know, we just got, okay, wait, people are actually, this is in the mix again, whereas for at least two years it wasn't in the mix at all. So that is good. Do we have any reason to expect that there will be more, either from Turnbull or from a Labour government going forward? There's been a lot of discussion about innovation, and obviously there's been a, an approximate commitment of about $1.1 billion, uh, under the bannerhead of the ideas boom, but is loosely uh, exists across a number of different initiatives, including early stage ventures, capital partnerships, um, the National Innovation and Science Agenda. Mm. Um, there has been a fair amount of criticism that it's a bit of an empty gesture, and that the... Why? Why an empty gesture? Well, compared to the commitment to other equivalent innovation policies, particularly in the US, okay. you know, $1.1 billion pales in comparison. Right. The US puts about $30 billion into R&D every year, mm -hmm. and there is a very um, formal process of 
taking really great R&D that doesn't necessarily always have a commercial focus and then finding a, a commercial focus or finding someone who is interested in, in developing that idea for, for a commercial purpose. Okay. Um, the same cannot be said of Australia yet. That being said, as you mentioned, Mark, just the fact that it was even put on the agenda has stimulated an awful lot of activity in the Australian startup space. Mm -hmm. And I'm beginning to think whether or not these promises come to fruition might be a little bit immaterial because I think the industry is starting to prove it does fine on its own. My concern is that what the ideas boom ought to be targeting is people who would struggle to get to phase one right. in startup. People who need between 50,000 and 1 million, mm. that space is a little derelict. And a lot of the initiatives that are offered under the ideas boom heavily favor investors. In particular, the limited venture capital partnerships, that is only accessible to people who have less than 30% control over their board, mm -hmm. which means that if you're a founder, you're not necessarily entitled to those stimuluses, even though all of the marketing around that doesn't mention that and speaks very much to the contrary. Right. So, so Dean, are you starting to see that these models are affecting the way people want to invest or structure their companies because of that? Absolutely. There's because the uh, measures were announced before they actually came into place. Right. So they so essentially they come in for the next tax year. There's been a somewhat of a of a, a valley here. Of, and of and lack they of were funding. warned about that valley. For sure. Right? For sure. So. Uh, for us in particular, we've had a couple of deals that we've waited. We, we waited till the 1st of July to be able to do it because right. there are tax incentives that make sense for us and for our investors. Okay. All right. So we, we, so we do have the fact that there's a policy, but even announcing a policy and not immediately delivering on that policy when that policy is around investment skews the investment market. So that's a bit of a... It's a bit of a ding there, right? It means that you maybe didn't think through the full implications of your policy announcement before that. We do have the employee stock ownership changes, and those are now in place. And so companies actually have this going forward. Are we seeing this affecting the way companies are forming and, and sharing, uh, giving out their shares to employees? I would say they're not affecting the way they're being formed. Uh, we are seeing all of our companies put... Um, ESOP plans in place. Mm -hmm. To be honest, the the major accountants had found ways around the rules previously anyway. Right. It was just a lot more expensive. Yes. So it, it's made it cheaper for businesses and often venture capital firms like ours um, have a plan in place that they can put across all of their businesses. Um, but in the end, it's the, it's the way businesses should be structured um, in that cash is always in, a, in shortage and to get people uh, incentives aligned in terms of giving employees shares is a much, much better structure. All right. So clear Wyatt Roy has disappeared. He didn't even show up at his own candidates debate in Longman last week. He's now behind in the polls. There's a broad consensus in startup land that he's the one politician that any of us have talked to actually knows what he's talking about here. What happens if that one brain in parliament that we think actually gets what's going on doesn't even get his seat back? I'm a little skeptical that there will be much change. While I think Wyatt Roy is an excellent politician and he obviously gets the startup space in a very native and natural way, 
um, and that is hugely something that stands in his favour and is greatly in favour for the startup community. That being said, he is young mm. and he is yet to have to prove himself because he got elected and within a very short space of time found himself in and yet another election. Mm. Um, so I don't think it's fair necessarily that we level all of the criticism at him. Certainly the innovation agenda and the ideas boom shouldn't be resting on his <laughs> shoulders. And certainly I think it probably would have happened anyway. I think Wyatt has been excellent for the startup space and I think he speaks in a way to the industry that no other politician does. So it will be a, a great loss to the community if he does not get elected. That being said, I do think that we can trust Ed Husick and the other candidates to do an equally uh, efficient job. I don't think that there will be much change one way or the other. Okay, so this brings me to my last question. You know, with the election coming up on July 2nd, is it really going to matter whether one party or another wins? I think we get to see. Um, I think certainly from the coalition side, they've been more forthright in announcing what they want to do. Uh, I think Labour still need to come out with something that's much more definitive. One thing I think is sure is that it's, it's at the forefront of discussion. Mm. And so both sides will need to push forward some policies uh, that are good for the country and good for the industry. Um, what those policies look like, we're going to have to wait and see. It's too soon to say. The thing I had think has gone unaddressed, which I think is really important, is that it does feel as though Australia is on a bit of a precipice economically. And it's become clear that we need some fairly dramatic and significant changes both to our super and taxation codes. I don't think what either party are offering really go at all an, enough of a way to addressing massive disparities in salaries, particularly when you're looking at things like super. People who are low are wage earners or low-income earners, mostly their funds are going to be sitting in industry super accounts you know, they're lucky if they put $1,000 into their super a year and maybe $500 of that is going to get sucked up into fees. If we're all about ensuring that the Australian population is in economically empowered mm. and who are upwardly mobile and therefore less dependent on any kind of government system, we need to create a structure that enables that to happen. And I don't think either party has really addressed that. You're listening to This Week in Startups Australia. We'll be right back. <laughs> Hi, this is Mark Pesci with a few words about Twista Series Sponsors Braintree, code for easy online payments. Entrepreneurs around the world have used Braintree as a simple way to accept PayPal, credit cards, debit cards, and whatever's next. With a single scalable integration, you get robust fraud protection on over 130 currencies around the world, making your global expansion a snap. And using Braintree, that's as easy as integrating a few lines of code, getting your business up and running fast. To learn more, visit braintreepayments.com slash twista. And we're back with Dean Durrell and Claire Connolly on the news panel special. Okay, Dean, investment. So everywhere you turn now, you see the announcement of a new fund popping up in Australia, new VC funds. Are you are you feeling the competition? Do you feel welcome by this? Uh, certainly don't feel pressure of competition. The industry uh, is so small so far. There's plenty of room for more funds. Uh, businesses have different uh, 
periods in their life cycle when they need funding. Mm. And what's happening is that people are raising funds at different parts of that, that life cycle. Um, there are so many businesses that need funding and it's so difficult for, for any of us who have funds available to fund even 5% of what comes through the door. Right. So the more funds, the better. The ecosystem needs reinforcing. Do, are we going to see more differentiation where a VC fund is going to say, okay, I'm actually going to take this narrow slice? Because we don't really see that so much in America. We have large generalist funds. Do we think we're going to see smaller but more focused funds here? Uh, you know what? In the U.S., funds get known for their for the, which industries they really like and mm -hmm. which sectors they like. Mm -hmm. And to be honest here, um, people are already specializing. There are certain people that really want to focus on a global SaaS. There's some people that say, well, I won't do that side of the business. Um, and I think people naturally uh, specialize because the, the, the founders of the VC funds themselves have certain things that they like investing. They've got historical uh, and comfort doing. zone. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Right. Okay. So, Claire, do we think maybe going forward that rather than Australians working from a sort of functioning lack that oh, there's not enough money in this country and there's not enough capital and I always have to go overseas, do we think that we're going to see a turning point where an Australian entrepreneur will always understand that there's going to be enough money here for them to grow? Sure, at some point. Yeah, I mean, it's possible. <laughs> um, I still think there's a lot of cynicism um, in the Australian industry. The, the amount that I hear, just get me out of this country or get me to the US or mm. get me somewhere where it's already understood what is required structurally to make this industry work. Right. You hear that a lot. That being said, having covered the startup space for you know the better part of five to seven years... I do think it's a little overstated because look around you in Sydney and you're Well, look not, at where we are. We're in Fishburners right now, right? You're yeah. not wanting either for VC, for co-working spaces, yeah. for incubators. Yeah. I think the Ideas Boom has put startups on the agenda and everyone has their hand out. Yeah. It's made it really competitive. It's not doing an awful lot for the holistic aspect of the startup culture, which mm. is supposed to sit a little bit separate from the corporate industry right. that we maybe wouldn't consider to be startup per se. And I think it does, it has the danger of crowding out people who are already struggling to get the attention and funds that they need because most of the businesses and startups that are fighting hard are ones that are already established. And I worry about what that's going if it's going to have a self-destructive impact at some point. So, Dean, we are loosely coupled to the economics of startup land in America. There has been, I don't know if you'd call it an implosion, but there's certainly been a contraction in the VC funds that are flowing into companies. There have also been practically no IPOs of note in dogs, it's literally turning into dogs years at this point. It's been 18, 24 months. Uh, Alibaba was really kind of the last big IPO. What's going on over there, and is it starting to affect what's going on over here? Well, what's happening over there is it's a slowdown. But let's remember that uh, the investment level got to a very, very high level. And the later stage investments were largely corporate uh, activity people trying to get exposed to growing companies. Mm -hmm. So whilst the, the market over there, and we, we watch it closely, we invest over there, mm -hmm. 
whilst the, the amount of investment has come back, it's not dead. What's happened is that people were used to being able to raise money really at any level. Yeah. And so burn was, was really irrelevant. It mm. was just grow crazily. Right. Even at a gross margin level, people prepared to, to lose money. And that's not a sensible way to run any business. It's fine to... Is, to it, is it not even during a, a rapid growth phase, it's not sensible? Well, look, there, there's times when a lifetime value of a customer is, is really, really big. Right. That's fine on the first transaction to lose money because the lifetime value will come through in time. But people always make large assumptions on lifetime value of customers. <laughs> and, and do they Optimistic ever ones, you mean? Yeah, optimistic yes. ones. So really, the, the, the uh, implications for Australia... Um, certainly for investors that can invest not only in Australia but in the US, then the opportunity to invest at roughly similar prices, um, the US has become much, much more affordable for, for Australian investors when they're comparing an opportunity in Australia or in the US. Is that bad for um, Australian companies because they're now competing against a larger pool of American companies for the same investment dollars. It's not necessarily bad because the industry is changing here at the same time. Mm. So in some ways we're having a balancing up effect. Um, certainly for investors who can who can um, compare uh, opportunities, the, the uh, attractiveness of Australian businesses at similar prices or just below when you've got a much bigger addressable market in the US, so, you know, it puts the uh, the balance of, of favor in, in the US business. So this is assuming, I guess, then that uh, both startups aren't trying to go after global markets from day one, and that would then be pushing Australian startups toward global markets. Well, there can be. There can be both companies going for global markets, right. and you have to make a bet, is it a winner-takes-all market? Yeah. Um, which one do you want to go for? But often there's there's businesses in Australia that you do have sizable addressable markets that are saying, okay, I want to grab a market or a marketplace here that will be big enough for, for for an investor, a professional investor, to be interested. But obviously, if someone's trying to do that in the uh, in the US, the the addressable market is much bigger there. All right, we'll we'll sort of meditate on the somewhat more depressing aspects of that for a moment, Claire. I'm looking at an article from Startup Smart, which came out a couple of weeks ago, talked about a new fund called StartMesh, launched $20 million. And 24 months ago, that would have been huge news. And now it's just kind of a blip. Oh, here's another fund opening up here in Australia. And part of that's because, of course, you know, Blackbird announced their $200 million fund last year. And we keep on seeing these benchmarks for large funds. Uh, are we at a point where we just, I guess... We no longer go, oh, my God, that's great news. But we just go, okay, that's fine. Let's move on. I actually think it's a sign of maturity. And, and it's kind of a little bit reassuring. I think there's been a real shift in the way that we approach VC and funds. Uh, particularly, I mean, I think the first thing was the, the dot-com 1.0 bubble bursting. I think the second one was actually Facebook's IPO. I think everyone learned a really big lesson about overvaluation and what happens when you go for too much money and you grow too fast. So I think when we're starting to see a lot of these funds come through, while there is obviously a fairly sizable land grab for funds, it is just another day in in paradise, so to speak. And, and I think that there is less 
oh my god, there's another fund coming <laughs> through. It's it's in everyone's best interest that we do not think that way. All right, Dean. We are now seeing companies being coaxed onto the ASX to do share offerings, tech companies. Is this a wise thing? Because now we've had ASX folks on here. We've had a dear Schiffman who raised $60 million for Catapult. He actually did it and it worked out. But for most companies, is this going to be a good idea from your point of view as an investor? Look, I think it really depends. There are some businesses that are really uh, appropriate for the ASX. Certainly the bigger companies, uh, and we've seen some of those come. Um, some of the smaller companies, um, time will only tell. The danger is that retail investors get sucked in, that sometimes there are advisors that are putting people into things that they don't really understand. Um, and have a much higher risk profile than other ASX listed companies. For sure. Look, and the ASX and ASIC are doing something about that right now. There's a couple of um, floats that are being, um, let's say, thoroughly examined <laughs> yes. um, that, we, that we, we hear about all the time. Look, there's been some fantastic um, IPOs. Afterpay came recently. It's up 40%. Um, it's a relatively new company, um, fast growing. If you'd invested in IPO, you're up 40%. Mm. So it really depends on which company and what stage they're in. You're listening to This Week in Startups Australia. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Mark Pesci, and a few episodes back, Twista spent an hour talking to Peter Dunn and Toby Eggleston of Greenwoods and Herbert Smith Freehills. They're the folks who helped the federal government draft the new laws around employee share ownership schemes. They did a great job on that show. I invite you to pop over to our Tumblr and give it a listen if you haven't already. Now, Peter and Toby are experts in this area. This is an area of great importance for every startup. You've already heard Dean talking about this because employee share schemes are how you attract and hold on to the best talent. So if you'd like to set up your own employee share scheme, visit Greenwood's website at www.greenwoods.com.au or Herbert Smith Freehills website at www.herbertsmithfreehills.com. And we're back with Dean Durrell and Claire Connolly on the new special. So Claire, a few weeks ago, great big announcement of this new thing called Tech Sydney. What is it? Tech Sydney, I guess, is a peak body, which is designed to, for intents and purposes, lobby on behalf of Sydney's startup space. So, in that sense, I guess it's analogous to what Startup Victoria is supposed to be doing? Yeah, in, in, in many senses. Um, I wouldn't go so far as to call it a union, but right. certainly I would maybe brand it as a special interest group. Right. Well, peak body special interest group, we have lots of examples of those. The AMA, of course, is the sort of category example here in Australia. Now, it's interesting because I was involved in some of the meetings that helped set up Tech Sydney, and I remember being in those meetings really thinking about well, there were a couple of issues on the table. One of them was, could we speak with a single voice to state government, right? State government, and this is particularly true, I think, after the change in leadership, state government became very sensitized to issues around startups. And I remember being pulled into a meeting with, 
I don't remember if it was innovation or small business department officials to talk about startups. And this is the thing that sort of evolved into, I guess, what started to become Tech Sydney. So do we think that, you know, and they have some very esteemed names there, the founders at Atlassian and Kim Harris and a whole bunch of other people who've been sort of working this process and driving it. Do we think that that is going to be enough of a body to be able to speak with one voice to state government? The question for me is, should the startup community be speaking with one voice at all? Startups have different requirements. And right now, there are a lot of founders who are of their own accord talking with government to see what they can do to ensure that the regulation works in their favor. Mm -hmm. Now, that's not going to work in everybody's favor. In fact, it might work against some startups. Um, While I think it's excellent that people like Mike Cannon-Brooks are part of Tech Sydney because I think Mike has a particularly astute Mm. way of looking at the industry. Um, And he seems to be of a certain personality that isn't quite as... um, cutthroat yeah and he's also not abrasive yeah well yeah that's i guess that's what i'm trying to get at and um but but on the other hand i don't know whether it's a good idea to be dividing australia up into states that are going to act against each other in trying to get the attention of the government now dean was Cardona invited to be part of tech sydney uh we weren't um i as far as i understand it was it was a um invite only to start with right um so look we, we're we're supportive of anything that's good for the ecosystem mm. however you know i'm in terms of my business i'm often looking for anarchic creative mm. disruptive people mm. i'm wary of organization <laughs> it's just not in the dna of successful entrepreneurs right. is that often these are the people that don't want to be organized they want to say f you to many things, right. including being told what to do, where to sit, who to re- respond to, right. how much to pay to be represented. So if, if it's a good thing for Sydney tech, that's great. But as a car owner, we don't want to be just focused on Sydney. We've got startups in Melbourne. We're looking in Perth. We're looking in Adelaide. So if it's good for the ecosystem in the country as a whole, we're for it. We don't want to see things that are divisive. So does that mean then that there actually does need to be a startup Adelaide? And I will tell you, because I was in Adelaide this week and I was talking to people because it was Entrepreneurship Week in South Australia this week, was talking to people who were showing me maps of their entrepreneurial ecosystem so that they actually at least understand what their ecosystem is. Do they need a peak body like Tech Sydney? Do they need a peak body in Perth? Do they need a peak body in Hobart? Because we already and and do they need one in Brisbane? To me, that's, that just sounds like a competitive arms race. You know, why do we need to be responding to, just because Texas sets up, why do we need people competing against each other? But, it, okay, so Claire, is it that, or is it that you're going to have a channel directly to the Premier's office, right? Is it is it more or less about competing with one another and more about getting that line into the Premier's office? Well, it's all about who has the Premier's ear and also who has the Prime Minister's ear. Right. Um... I think it, it does, there seems to be something kind of paradoxical going on, that these so-called champions of the free market, who whenever the conditions fall slightly out of favour, suddenly cry foul that they're being ignored by the government. Connected to that, there has been this big 
debate over a tech precinct in Australia. Should we have a Silicon Valley? Or a Silicon Alley is what it's starting to be called in Australia. And there are two, there are probably more than two, but let's, let's focus on the two sort of opposing viewpoints. Malcolm Turnbull has rightly said, if we set up a Silicon Valley in Australia, it, it serves a particularly white bread and, let's face it, predominantly male, predominantly We'll Western, be coming to that in just a moment, but yes. <laughs> uh, predominantly Western right. attitudes. And, you know, if we set up a, a Silicon Valley or a precinct, will it therefore create even less opportunity for people out in South Australia, for people out in, in, in Perth, or who don't live in a capital city, but who nonetheless have the talent and an internet connection right. and who could have something exceptionally valuable to contribute to this so economy. So it's, it's them that has gets more. Yeah, it's about diversity and access. And I think, to be fair, it's a fair argument. Mm. The counter viewpoint to that is when you're trying to get VC funding and you're flying someone out from the States or you're flying someone out from China or wherever... Are they going to spend more money if they have to take five flights in the space of four days? And if everyone has some kind of office presence within a capital city, you know, it means you can walk down the road and, hey, maybe you might get another 10 grand and that'll help. And that is also a totally understandable argument. What is happening, this factionalism between the states, the Tech Sydney and do we need a Tech Brisbane? It is. It's an arms race. And I really think that everyone should just be hustling for themselves. If you want the ear of the Premier, go and find a way to get the ear of the Premier. Go to meetups, go to networking events. You don't need to be forming peak bodies. If we're going to form peak bodies, let's look at workers' rights. Let's look at, honest to God, gender parity and salary. Like There are lots of peak bodies that we should have. Helping already established industry get even more money and attention from the government, I, I just, I really worry about what happens. Uh, you know, to, to your first point about putting everyone in the same place, I know that one of the uh, key starting points for Tech Sydney was when uh, the, um, the uh, Australia Technology Park was turned into a CBA facility, right? And that all the startups are going to be driven out and all of that stuff, and which came as a shock because that happened while we were meeting with state government to talk about ways that state government could do more for startup land. And it was as if one part of government wasn't talking to another part and was cutting up one part off while saying, oh, we're going to help another part. And I think that was part of the genesis right there. But when you talk about this idea of it being, you know, producing a white bread, more homogenous startup community, you have to take a look at, and the thing that I found striking was the photo that was in the Fin Review of the founders of Tech Sydney, who were, un, I think, all white, sort of middle-aged, sort of probably, you know, 50 was the top cutoff, and there was one woman in that photo. Is that a good look? No, no, it's a terrible look. What were they thinking? I couldn't possibly say. <laughs> it's, you have to, you have to, and because I was in those planning meetings, and those planning meetings at the table, half of the people were women. So it's, there was, I think, it's quite possible that this is just our blind spot and that they didn't think that it would look bad. They thought it would look great because we've got all these great entrepreneurs together without actually thinking, yes, but is that trying to represent what we want to be as a community? Have they been on the internet lately? I mean, every time I take a photo with founders that even, you know, three quarters of them are, are, you know, white and male, the first comment is, it's a really diverse photo. It's really great. Yeah. 
Really wonderful. You're listening to This Week in Starps Australia. We will be right back. Hi, this is Mark Pesci. Now, during our news specials, we always reference articles and interviews online. And if you want to read them for yourself and come to your own conclusions about the points that we're making, I want you to visit our Tumblr at twistartupsaus.tumblr.com. You'll also find photos of our lovely guests, previous episodes, articles, lots, lots, lots more. So check it out at twistartupsaus.tumblr.com. And we're back with Dean and Claire, our final segment. This is a bit of a grab bag, but I want to start off with the fact that we now have a fintech peak body. My God, everywhere you look, there are peak bodies. And they've elected a CEO, a woman, which is a very nice thing to see. So we have Fintech Australia, we have a peak body. Uh, Danielle Zetho, I believe, is the correct pronunciation of who's going to be running it. I guess the first question is, Dean, do we need a fintech peak body? It's a great question. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Um, do we need more fintech businesses um, to give customers a better uh, experience? Absolutely. Yes. yes. Is there a big opportunity for fintech businesses to take some of the $40 billion that the big four banks exploit from customers? <laughs> yes. Yes. Right. But do we need a pick body? Like I said before, I believe in disruption, founders who are on that border of crazy and practical, anarchic. Do they need to be organized? Maybe. But I'd rather just see founders really just going for it. Claire? No more peak bodies. No, like what? You form a peak body, and you naturally assume, oh well, they must have everyone's best interests at heart, and soon we'll all just dance on pinheads. Mm. You know, like just no, no, it's not a good idea. Is this an inherent feature of the Australian psyche that we just want peak bodies that we find them somehow secretly comforting? I think that we're in a bit of a conundrum. Um, as I mentioned before, you know, you claim that you value free market and that if you make good investment decisions and you make good business decisions, your company will be amply rewarded. Why should anything else stand between those two things? All right. Well, now let me, let me bring this back a little bit because I have done quite a bit of work at Stone and Chalk and I've had Alex Scandera on this couch to talk to him. And of course, what they're doing is they're working now with um, Abra and ASIC to create what they're calling the sandbox, which is a, a way for companies that don't have a financial services license to be able to offer financial services as subsidiaries to that license. And that's a fantastic idea. It's going to allow startups to be really anarchic and break things without necessarily wrecking the financial system, which would be bad, as we all know. Is that the kind of thing that maybe a fintech Australia can be looking to provide for the entire country, not just something that's inside a stone and chalk. Would that be a worthwhile thing for them to do? I think so. I think, um, especially when you're dealing in finance, which is highly regulated, startups need some space. They need space to be able to offer what they're doing, which is, we all know products are not finished when you start. Um, having a sandbox of six months 
is good. Well, the one problem is it's a finite six months. It's not a transition period. Right. They're openly saying that once you get to your six months, you may need to close. You may to, need to stop offering the, the product to your customers. That's just, that's impractical. Well, and also as an investor, that would scare me to death. Absolutely. You're going to say, okay, get in your sandbox, prove it out. Right. Okay, improve the product. Now we'll invest. Right. Not, not we'll invest now and suddenly in six months' time you're taken out of the sandbox and where do you go then? And is that ASIC being silly? I think they haven't thought it through. They okay, wanted, so it is ASIC being yeah, silly. Yeah, they they, they've set a finite period. Yeah. Okay, transitional period. That's, that's, that's great. It's difficult. Yeah. Six months is a very short time. I mean, what do you achieve in six months? Particularly if you're starting up. Right. Six months will take you just that long to perfect your business model, let alone hiring, fleshing it out, creating a minimal viable product. Yeah. That's not going to happen in six months. Well, and also all of the work that it goes through. If you do need a financial services license, that is not an immediate process, right? That is a deep process. There's a lot of investigation and all of this stuff. So it's expensive and time-consuming. So even if you started that process when you entered the sandbox, there's no guarantee you're going to have your license as you're exiting the sandbox. And so there really is a time when you wouldn't have the capacity to offer a service. Yeah, but I think that you can set up your business. You can get your product up, not actually offering it to customers. Right. I think what they're saying is you've got six months actually to not have an AFSL and to interact with customers. Yeah. So you could have a long running period to that and say, okay, this is the day we're in the sandbox and we've got six months to interact with customers. All right. Let's leave all of the happy peak bodies behind and just talk about the lay of the landscape. Dean, what is the thing that is most exciting you right now in startup land? So I think it is the quality of startup ideas that are coming through. Has there been a noticeable increase? There really has. There's been an awakening, I think, for... Uh, there's a new generation of entrepreneurs coming through mm -hmm. where those people who generally would have gone into finance, they might have gone into professional services. Mm -hmm. People are saying, okay, a startup is a viable career right. and pre being prepared to take risk. So I think through the doors of Carthona, we are seeing uh, a substantial increase in the number of businesses we'd like to, to back. And so that's a good problem to have. Absolutely. It, you know, it's a good problem in that the quality's there. Um, having A, the time, uh, and B, uh, the funds, that's the difficult thing yeah. in terms of applying that. Yeah. But again, those are the problems you want to have. Exactly. It's not as if uh, we're sitting there looking for investment ideas right. and there's nothing to invest in. Claire, are you seeing this as well? I think there's some really... Um, amazing ingenuity and problem solving happening in the startup space right now. Um, right, I mean, for example, I, I'm doing some work for a prop tech startup that's trying to address access. I'm not an authorized representative, so I'm not going to get into any detail. Um, but the amount of, of startups now that exist that are just tackling a single individual problem right. that aren't out to solve the world's ills, right. one out to maybe create a solution for world peace. But it's like this beautiful little mosaic or jigsaw puzzle where everyone's just like, what one thing can we do better that's going to significantly improve people's quality of life, mm -hmm. quantity of life? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's a pretty exciting time to be covering this space. I'm, it's a goldmine for stories. I mean, I have to admit from my own point of view that, and again, 
because I have a history in virtual reality, and I, we did a VR special two months ago, and just the amount of explosion I've seen in this space in the two months since we did the special is insane. And it seems like that's happening in fintech as well. I've done a lot of work now with Westpac and on the blockchain. And you start, everywhere you start looking, you start seeing people who, again, are taking one good idea, but they're professionals. I mean, we're now starting to see people who are sort of graduate, maybe have been working in the bank for a year or two, who now have these amazing ideas and are take and are make, taking the risk to leave what would basically be a lifetime job behind, right? And go out and actually start to go, I'm going to work on this idea. This is my dent in the universe. It's, it is amazing. It's a bit like macroeconomics in action. It's, th there's been some... Some switch has been pulled. And, and oh, this... my God, it's the ideas boom. <laughs> oh, please. I was really hoping we could get through a podcast without and mentioning yet. that. But, yeah, it's like uh, somebody has pulled a lever to say we there are there are pushes and pulls in this economy and we can create both of those things and, and respond accordingly. I think it's a, yeah, it's pretty exciting. All right, Dean, I'm going to give you a magic wand. You can fix any one thing as an outcome of this election. What are you going to fix? I would have the government um, wave their magic wand with the super funds to take a long-term uh, view on what's good for the country. Um, they should be mandated to put a certain portion into early-stage businesses. Um, so into high-risk, essentially. Yeah, yeah. yeah. into, into high-risk early stage innovative companies mm -hmm. um, because for them often the, the problem is their check size is so big these days yeah. i've had uh super funds talk to me and say the minimum we could write is a hundred million dollars yeah. which is a really really big number yes but um if we build um the the financing capability for the entrepreneurs that need the cash that would be a fantastic thing to do claire you have I was the also about to say super, but I'm going to come at it from a slightly different angle. Part of the problem with super in Australia is that if you have less than $200,000 in super, there's very little that you can do with it. Mm -hmm. And it also means that you have less flexibility in terms of how much of, of that goes to fees and what will be left over will be the thing that you live on. Right. We urgently, urgently need to address the super system in this country, particularly for low-wage earners, but also just middle-income earners. You know, anyone who earns between fifty dollars and $80,000 a year should be considered someone that is has the potential to be upwardly mobile. Mm. And yet, aren't. They're completely stymied by our financial and tax system. Also, small business, small to medium enterprises. I'm starting to think, do they even need their own separate tax code? There are people that are just being left out of this system by virtue of some pieces of paper. And while what's written on those pieces of paper is exceptionally important, I think there is a way that we can address the economic system holistically so that more people are putting money into it and therefore have more money to invest in services, which is going to be great for everyone involved, whether you're an investor, whether you're a founder, whether you're a business owner, whether you work in a business. We need to have more participation in this economy. And neither party have come up with any kind of solution about how to address the bottom 50% of this country. They're being completely ignored and isolated. And we need to find a way to include them, not to mention diverse communities in Australia, not to mention migrants and refugees. It's just, it's too white bread. It's too focused at industry. Um, there's a way to do it without ignoring either party. 
that's that's my two cents. <laughs> Dean Durrell, Claire Connolly, thank you very much for being our guests on this news special on This Week in Startups Australia. Thanks, Mark. Great being here. Big thanks to Twister sponsors Braintree and Greenwoods and Herbert Smith Freehills. Their support makes this podcast possible. Thanks to Felix Warmoth and AnalogCabin.net for his hard work creating a podcast that is consistently amazing to listen to. Thanks again to Dean and Claire for making the time to come on this show. We will be back in a fortnight. We're going to be dedicating our entire show to an in-depth interview with one of the leading lights of the Sydney startup community, Mick Lubinskis. Until then, this is Mark Pesci thanking you for listening to This Week in Startups Australia.